0: I didn't, I didn't plan to share this. Um, <laughs> there's moments where where God gets a hold of you, right? And and, and that's one for me. Um, uh, for many years in my life growing up, uh, my mom was a uh, special education teacher in the public school system. And um, year in, year out, I had an opportunity just to uh, spend a lot of time um, with multiple students Um, and I think that was probably my first introduction into just really caring for folks Um, and for whatever reason, God's messing with me right now, so I apologize. Mm. Yesterday, (laughs) this is not a way to start a sermon, y'all. (laughs) Oh. <laughs> Yesterday I was with the other people that I serve. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> Let me show you a couple pictures. Yesterday I was with the other students that I serve, and this uh, particular picture, um, if you were to look at it really close, um, is super blurry. Um, That's not because the camera wasn't good enough. As a matter of fact, it's like one of the new iPhone 13s out there. It does a really good job in low light. It's really blurry because kids are bouncing. The whole entire room is moving. You know, over 100 kids up there last night absolutely losing their minds singing out to the Lord. There's another picture for you um, in that space. Middle schoolers and high schoolers, this one's more clear, but middle schoolers and high schoolers and leaders together, just allowing God to continue to do work in them. And for the next 24 hours, they will be continually be up there. And we've already prayed for them. But I wanted to bring you back just a message that they are going for it, y'all. And here's my segue, because that's what we do up here, is the thing that, that, that always makes me nervous is the moment that they come back home. Because this, this world, their own insecurities, their own families tend to want to rob them of that experience of being with Jesus. And so as we've prayed that they would find Jesus, I encourage you to pray this week for them that as they come back, that they wouldn't step into the temptations that are here to be angry and frustrated at the world and at their parents and all the things that are around them, that they would hold on to Jesus really, really well. Would you pray that with me this week? Because as you know, temptation is real and effective and at times... In our lives and often in the midst of transition or change, it happens and it robs us of the connection that we have with the Lord. We tend to rely on our own strengths to lead us. We tend to trust in our own gifts to serve us. We, t- we tend to believe that if we can control even a little piece of the world, all will be well. It's our tendencies that get us in trouble as believers, as individuals, and as a church. As a church, we need to look deep. As individuals and as a community, so that we might engage the disciplines that keep us connected to Jesus. Those that will empower us to let go of our tendencies to do what honors our self-satisfaction and comfort. uh, To do what makes us feel safe. To create a kingdom in our image as opposed to God's image. And with that introduction, would you please stand with me? For the reading of God's Word. I'm going to take us through the whole section that we'll be dealing with from last week to this week. I will not continue Matthew chapter 4, 1 through 7. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days, 40 nights, For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift up their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. We are in this passage that is known as the temptation of Jesus. We are going to take each temptation, spend a week really looking what's going on in it, what's happening with Jesus, how Jesus is responding, how's he overcome, and what does that mean for you and I in this world. We are at the very beginning of Jesus's ministry There have been no signs, no wonders, not one miracle. Jesus has not taught crowds or in the synagogue. We find that he teaches the crowds in Luke, but this is Matthew's gospel. And we need to stay true to where we're being led here in this particular gospel. For Matthew, this is where the whole story of the gospel begins to take shape. Until now, Herod has been the antagonist, but his time is done. We are getting ready to see all that Jesus will do. Jesus has been baptized by John the baptizer. He's been led into the desert by the Holy Spirit. He fasted in order to abide in the sustaining presence of God and allowed scripture to influence and ground his decision. Then, then what happened? Well, just because Jesus referred to scripture in the first temptation did not send the devil running. Verse five, then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. Then, then is this word that, that Matthew uses, uh, kind of like Mark. In Mark, you hear Mark um, say immediately a lot. It's this movement from one place to another. I've talked about it before. For Matthew, it's the word then. It's from one place to another. thing is happening really quickly. Then, Jesus is transported to what we can only guess is Jerusalem. And that we're not talking about transportation in a Star Trek beam me up, Scotty, or energized sort of way, depending on your generation of Star Trek. What I'm trying to say is that the movement from Jesus to the, in the desert, to the temple is not necessarily physically important. It's more likely that it's a shared vision that's vibrant enough to be real. You understand that type of vision. You know the kind of thing that happens to us in the midst of a dream that is so real that you wake up and your heart is racing or you wake up crying and depressed because you just found out that a good friend or family member has died but it hasn't actually happened yet. But you're still grieving that moment. When I was a kid, I remember having a dream that I was in a store and there was no food on the shelves. I must have been hungry. And I remember going and and, and the shelves were empty, shelves were empty until I saw this one jar of peanut butter. And I was so excited for that jar of peanut butter that I went and I, and as I reached out to grab the peanut butter, my hand actually punched the wall right next to my bed and I sprained my wrist. (laughs) No joke visions can be powerful and they can be physically damaging. <laughs> what we do know is whether or not this moment of Jesus standing on the temple is actually physical or it's a vision, it is disorienting. The devil has Jesus stand on the highest point of the temple. Or literally speaking, the wing of the temple. There is so much speculation about what this wing, this edge, this pinnacle, this wall was. We don't know because we have guesses about what the the temple looked like and what was adorning the temple on the side. But suffice it to say this, the wing is a high place on the temple that if you fell from it you would be seriously seriously injured or more likely die but again there's some realities here that are being expressed in this passage for first century people that you and I need help in understanding the wing of the temple would actually have been some sort of architectural reminder of things in scripture let me take you there Psalm 17, 8, keep me as the apple of your eye, hide me in the shadow of your wings. Psalm 36, 7, how precious is your loving kindness, O God, and the children of men take refuge in the shadow of your wings. Psalm 57, 1, for the choir director set to Altesaheth, a, myth, a tam of David, when he fled from Saul in the cave, that is important. Be gracious to me, O God, be gracious to me, for my soul takes refuge in you. And in the shadow of your wings, I take refuge until destruction passes. And most importantly for our peace today, Psalm 91.4. He will cover you with his feathers and under his wings, you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and a rampart. The visual that is created in the first line is a significant one. Jesus is on the temple, the place where the people of Israel come in order to remain secure in their relationship with God. This temple, this space, this this architecture that stands at the center of their living. A place where Israel comes to take refuge and God, it is there. In that environment, but the accuser repeats the intro to the temptation. If you are the son of God. Again, this is a challenge to Jesus' humanity. Jesus' understanding of his identity as the son of God. Remember. Jesus' identity is being challenged. Jesus' core purpose is being called into question. Jesus is fully human, and I can only imagine is quite possibly wrestling with the things that you and I wrestle with in our insecurities of with God. The tempter is trying to set Jesus' identity against the Fathers. Will he be able to set a wedge in the relationship of Father? And son, does he succeed in setting a wedge between you and Jesus? Jesus is told, throw yourself off the temple. Why? Because Scripture, because God says you can. Hidden in this statement is a subtle, see, I know scripture too. Scripture may not be the thing that you need right now. The scripture says this, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift up their hands so that they will not, that you will not strike your foot against a stone. The greater part of this passage that is being referenced here says this. If you say, the Lord is my refuge, and you make the Most High your dwelling, no harm will overtake you. No disaster will come near your tent, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the cobra, and you will trample on the great lion and the serpent. Parenthetically, This is part of what is the problem with the end of Mark. Picking up servants. These are the tests that we put before God that whether or not we're faithful. That's a completely other sermon, but I wanted to give that to you. It goes on. Because God, lo- uh, because he loves me, excuse me, because people love me, he says the Lord, I will rescue him. I will protect him for he acknowledges my name. He will call on me. I will answer him. I will be, I will be With him in trouble, I will deliver him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. This is what it means to be faithful in God's response to those who are faithful. For those of you who are wondering, this is all coming out of Psalm 91. I mean all of it. 91.4, he will cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your rampart. Verse 11, he will command you, his angels concerning you, to guard in all your ways. They will lift up their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. We're all in Psalm 91. The accuser. Not only addressing Jesus and challenging Jesus' identity, he is setting it against scripture and using it as a means to actually challenge God. Jesus, and by extension, you and I, are often tempted and tested. We're invited to turn our backs on what God has promised us. In order to address our own insecurities, our own troubles, our own stuff. Throw yourself down from here. I have to be honest, it really feels like an easy temptation to me. Having been on some very high places, I can tell you that I was not tempted in any way at any particular point in time to go to Psalm 91 and go, Well, let me see if God is actually real. Let me toss myself off of this big rock. That's not happening in my world. I'm not sure that's happening in Jesus. Most of us are like, yeah, I don't I, I'm good, thanks. So what's up? Jesus remembers and responds. It is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. In other words, I don't want to test God this way. This response is actually really good within the context of Matthew. We could walk away from here and think that Jesus is correct in his response, which he is. You and I should probably think this is really um, a problem for us if we can't think our way through this and address God that way, right? The Father has proven love. He has proven care. He has proven that he is more gracious and merciful than we can ever expect. So why should we test that? Yet, just like the previous temptation, there's something larger happening here. And we need to look back in order to understand what this might mean for us clearly. Looking back, Exodus 17. One through seven, to be quite honest. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, But there was no water for the people to drink, so they quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Moses replied, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put God to the test? Seems like an odd question until you remember the previous chapter in Exodus. The previous chapter we talked about last week. Let me remind you, the Israelites complained and God gave them manna, which incidentally, as it says in Scripture, was white like coriander seed and tasted like wafers made with honey. God can do some seasoning too on the manna. Better than the little wafers that we get in the, in the communion. I don't taste no honey in those. So, what did the Israelites do? They complained. So, what did God do? He gave them quail, which is kind of like chicken, which means that the Israelites existed for 40 years on what amounts to a diet of chicken and waffles. I'm telling you, my God is good. You're with me now. Good soul food. And on top of that, God institutes a Sabbath, a whole Sunday where they can eat chicken and waffles, enjoying what God's goodness is for them. God is that good, y'all. Up until this point, God has given an abundance of, of provision to the point where it's actually comical and thus the joke. It's ridiculous them out in the desert picking up good seasoned bread that tastes like honey that they didn't have to go fight bees for and do the thing for and quail that is there for them. They have been provided for and they have a whole day that they just don't have to do anything. They're required just to chill. All of that happens, and then Israel starts complaining again. This complaint is a general protest against God and is why Moses is saying, why do you put the Lord to the test? Why do you keep putting me in a place where I got to keep going back to the Lord and start asking questions for the guy who remember that whole sea thing that we walked through? Remember all of this, stuff, the, the, the burning bush? I, I, I don't really want to deal with God like this anymore, y'all. I want to be able to move forward. I think he's proven himself. Let's go. Exodus 3. Excuse me, Exodus 4. But the people were thirsty for water there. And they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? They're not hungry anymore, but they're thirsty then Moses cried out to the Lord, What am I supposed to do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered to Moses, Go in front of the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff in which you struck the Nile, and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb, strike the rock, and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the place Massah and Meribah, because because the israelites quarrelled because and because they tested the they tested the lord saying is the lord among us or not is the lord among us or not is the lord among us or not so that israel would remember moses literally calls the place Testing and dissatisfaction, Masa and Meribah. Jesus has this in mind, yet even more so, Jesus is processing his relationship, the relationship of Israel with God that is explained in Deuteronomy. It is in Deuteronomy that we understand clearly the voice of Jesus in Matthew. Jesus remembers and responds, quoting Deuteronomy 6, verse 16 Do not put the Lord your God to the test as you did at Massa. Do not do this thing. Do not put Yahweh your God to the test as you did at testing. Israel had been led into the desert in order that God might humble and test them so that they might be found faithful at the beginning of it all. And he establishes his relationship with them. Deuteronomy 6. We're still in Deuteronomy 6. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 6. You've heard this before. I will say it again. Hear, O Israel. Hear, O church. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strengths. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts and on and on. God has shown his faithfulness to Israel time and time again. Yet God's people continue to be dissatisfied with where God has led them. God has shown his faithfulness to Jesus, yet Jesus chooses in this moment to be faithful to God's leading. There is a difference there between Israel and Jesus. God has shown himself faithful to Lake Church. What are we going to do? God has shown himself faithful to you and I. What are you going to do? Because it's not about throwing yourself down from a temple. Let me put it another way. In the shadow of this temple. Jesus is in the most excruciating pain that he's ever felt in his life. Not only is he alone, but he's being executed. There's a criminal to his right and to his left, and an accuser comes in and through the frame. Matthew 27:40 and says this. Hey you. Yeah, yeah, you, the one who was going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Another temptation. At a moment where we needed Jesus to be faithful to, to following God. And because Jesus was faithful in this temptation. God knew he was going to be faithful at the cross. So when we step into faithfulness. God knows that we're going to be faithful later. When we step into the faithfulness that Jesus has, has led us into. God continues to lead us into more and more and more for his sake, not ours. Foolishness of the temptation on the temple becomes more real than you or I could ever imagine. Temptation to test God so our fears are are comforted is a real one. Temptation to to believe that blessing without suffering is a mark of faithfulness is a real one, and it's not good. Temptation to believe that God is going to bless what I'm doing because I might find scriptural support for it may not be the way that we are supposed to be being led. Once again, Jesus response comes from scripture, but it's not only scripture memorization that's effective. He understands the life giving nature of the word and law of God and the relationship with the living God that has been set from the beginning and he asks you and I to do the same. He knows to keep the commandments as a means to be in relationship with God and he asks us to do the same. He is clear on the importance of following God and waiting for God's leading and he asks us to do the same. Jesus chooses to be obedient to the Father, drawing strength and truth from the communion that he has has had through fasting in the wilderness and church, we're going to have an opportunity to do that over Lent and leading into to Easter. As a body, as one together. So what does this mean for, for, for the church? One, fo- <clears throat> Excuse me. following where God leads requires us to be aware of our own motivations. Because when we can separate our own motivations from what God wants for us, then we can follow what God wants for us and set our own motivations aside. Amen? Two, following where God leads requires us to be committed to being transformed. We've said it in this place. Many people have said it. God loves you the way you are, but refuses to leave you that way. He wants us to be a representative of who He is in this world, of the kingdom in this world, so that His glory might be shown. Three, following where God leads is different than going somewhere you think God allows. I wonder in this temptation if it was allowable for Jesus to throw himself down, allow the angels to do what they do. I guess I really don't have to question that because Israel tested and tempted and tested and tempted, yet at the same time, God continued to use them. It may not have been as pretty, It's clear, See, the thing is that churches tend to act more like institutions or organizations rather than the bride of Christ. And as Abraham Heschel puts it, when faith is completely replaced by creed and worship by discipline and love by habit, When the crises of today are ignored because of the splendor of the past. When faith becomes an heirloom rather than a living fountain. When religion speaks only in the name of authority rather than the voice of compassion. Its message becomes meaningless. And our message to the world will be meaningless unless we live into a faith that is real and vibrant and follows the Lord wherever he leads us. If we as a church are willing to wrestle with our own motivations, bring them into submission to the living God and the dynamic relationship God has established with us, we will be able to withstand the temptation to test God's faithfulness to us, to ask God to prove that he loves us by demanding our comfort. Our responsibility is to trust that God has done for us, saying, yes, the Lord is among us. It takes radical and ruthless trust that may require us to let go of our ideas about the way that we think things should be. So what does this mean for you as an individual? One, Love God with all your heart and your soul and your strength. All of it. I stand here with you, knowing that I'm not there yet. I don't know anybody who is there yet except for Jesus. But that's the vision, that's the direction, that's where God's taking us. Love God, all heart, all soul, all strength, all of it. Two, love your neighbor as yourself. Gosh, we put so much on that. Well, which neighbor should I love? How should I do that? I don't know, love so far because I, you know, that's uncomfortable. Dominique Gilliard puts it this way. This love is most profoundly expressed across lines of difference. And in relation to the least of these. Three. Three. Live in the presence of God in such a way that you welcome transformation and expect change. We tend to get comfortable in our own place, in our own space, in our own time. How do I know? Because I know where y'all sit. We have that tendency not just in a place like this, but in our lives in general. And we don't expect or desire the change that God wants to bring in our lives. So we trust God with all the things and expect change. Church, we need to look deep. As individuals and as a community so that we might pursue our relationship with the triune God in a way that will empower us to do what honors God and betrays our self-satisfaction and comfort. To do what, what God is leading us to do which may not make you and I safe. And pursue the kingdom of God and not our own kingdoms. Amen and amen.